Welcome to the ministry of the International Christian Assembly in Southeast Spain. We are here for the purpose of worshiping God and reaching others with love. We pray that as you listen, you will be inspired and challenged in your walk with God. Good morning. So we're going to look at three passages all in Luke's Gospel. If you want to follow along in your Bible, I'll be going quite deep in some of the passages. We're going to look at two characters that Jesus met during his ministry period. And then the third, the third passage that we're going to look at sort of expands what we've learned from those two people. So before we get into that, let's just pray. Lord, open our hearts, our ears, our minds and our eyes to your word, Lord. Let them sink deep into us and be a blessing to us and a challenge to us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Okay, so two characters in Luke's Gospel. The first one, not very surprisingly, is Zacchaeus. And having worked as an accountant for 40 years, it's very difficult for me to talk to you about a tax collector. But I, I'm, I'm going to try and do that. But before we get into Zacchaeus, it's worth noting that in the very first verse of Luke 19, it tells us that Jesus entered Jericho and he was passing through. This wasn't a big meeting where there were lots of people. Yes, there were crowds, but there weren't any healings that we know of or people raised from the dead. Jesus was just passing through. He just happened to be there, which gave Zacchaeus the opportunity to see him. Now, in Hebrew, the name Zacchaeus means righteous, but his profession meant that he was very far from being righteous. A tax collector in those days was responsible for collecting tax for the Roman Empire. And of course, he was Jewish, so he was working for the enemy. But more than that, the system that the Romans had is they would say to him, look, this is how much money we want you to collect. Anything else you collect over and above is yours. We're not paying you. It's just up to you to collect as much as you can by any means that you can, so long as you don't start a riot. But more than that, Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. So he wasn't just, ex as it were, extorting money from people. He was extorting money from the people who were extorting money. So he, the name Zacchaeus, meaning righteous, was not a very appropriate name for him. And it says that he, he got to be very wealthy in verse 2 there. He says he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Jericho was a good spot to be a tax man. It was near a main trade route leading out of Jerusalem to the east. And so it was very easy for him to make a lot of money. But it would also make him very unpopular. He would have had very few friends. 
He probably wasn't welcome in the synagogue. He was a bit of a social outcast. But he had heard of Jesus. And in verse 3 it says that he wanted to see who Jesus was. But there was a problem. He was a short man. And he couldn't see. And no doubt the crowds would have been very unwilling to move to one side to let him see either. So Zacchaeus climbed a fig tree, a sycamore tree. Apparently, I'm I'm not green-fingered, but I'm told it's very closely related to a mulberry tree and that the texture of the bark makes it very easy to climb. And there were a lot of them by the roadside to provide shade during the heat of summer. So Zacchaeus climbed one of these trees. That meant it was easy for him to see what was going on. But it was also an opportunity for Jesus to see him. And surprisingly, when we get to verse 5 and 6, we find that Jesus didn't just ignore him. Although he was there just passing through, he didn't bypass Zacchaeus. Rather, he looked up to him and said, I must stay at your house. Note that. He didn't say, I would like to stay at your house. He said, I must stay at your house. And the response of the crowd was that they all started murmuring. They were grumbling behind his back. They were all pointing the finger. He's gone to stay with a sinner. But Zacchaeus, his behaviour was something of a contrast to the grumblers. He stood up. That means, if you go into the original Greek, he sort of stood very... He, he puffed his chest out. He was, he was quite proud to be there. And he made this important announcement. He said, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And given he was a very rich man, this would have been quite a substantial sum. But he goes even further. He says, if I have cheated anybody, well, he most certainly had, that's for sure. He said, if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And being stood there to attention in front of the crowd, they would have all heard him. He didn't sneakily say it. He let everybody hear what he had to say. Now, four times the amount was very generous. Under the law of Moses in Leviticus 6.5, it says that you should give back the original sum that you've stolen or defrauded plus a fifth. So four times is a lot more than one and a fifth. In Exodus 22, 1, 
it mentions giving a fourfold redemption if it's a killing or selling of an animal. I don't know whether Zacchaeus had got his law mixed up. He probably hadn't been to the uh, synagogue for quite a while. It could just be that he was being very generous. In Proverbs 6 and 31, it mentions making a sevenfold restitution. But it's not clear that that was ever required. So Zacchaeus was being generous. In fact, given all the people that he had defrauded, giving them back four times what he defrauded them, it would effectively make him bankrupt. He was voluntarily choosing bankruptcy because he had made his money his God. He had made money his God to the point where he didn't have any friends, where he was an outcast. And he'd had enough. And he said, I want to give it up to follow you, Jesus. And Jesus in verse 9 says, Today, salvation has come to this house. He said, This man too is a son of Abraham. Now, to all Jews, they would think that they were all sons of Abraham. But Jesus is talking about being a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. Zacchaeus was definitely someone who was lost. And Jesus had sought him out and he saved him. I'd like to move on to another character in Luke's Gospel. Just a few verses earlier in Luke 18. Not a very dissimilar story, but a very different outcome. Luke 18, verse 18, through to 27. He says, A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honour your father and your mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, them, asked him, Who then can be saved? And Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. So we're told that this man was a ruler. The uh, term 
that he used for the ruler in, in, in Luke's gospel is, is very open to interpretation. Some have said that he was a synagogue ruler. But Matthew's gospel tells us that he wasn't just a ruler, he was young. And as a young man, he was unlikely to be a synagogue ruler. So we don't know exactly his position, but he was part of the ruling classes. And no doubt, unlike Zacchaeus, he was very well respected. He was someone that people would point to and encourage their children. When you grow up, be like him. Unlike Zacchaeus, he would have been very welcome in the synagogue. I'm sure his offerings were very well accepted. But he gave Jesus an unusual greeting. He said, good teacher. Now, in the original language, this is not a very common greeting. In fact, it's not a greeting that you would normally hear at all to greet someone who is a rabbi. Because the rabbis would know that only God is good. But nevertheless, that is the way that the rich young ruler chose to address Jesus. Undoubtedly, he was trying to flatter him. He was trying to impress him. He was trying to get on the right side. He was trying to be right with Jesus through his own effort. And Jesus asked him, why do you call me good? No one is good apart from God. In effect, he was getting him to think what he was saying. He was asking the question, do you really truly believe that? Do you honestly believe what you've just said? Jesus knew it was flattery, but he was trying to get the guy to think. But then he goes even further. Because the man asked, what must I do to be good? Sorry, to enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus tells him what he has to do. And those of you who have been along to the Bible study on the Ten Commandments will immediately recognize that what... Jesus said to him, he's five of the last six commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honour your father and your mother. And then the rich young man gives a very startling answer. He says, I've done all of those since I was a boy. I don't think he had, really. Many years ago, I actually did an introduction to the Ten Commandments when I was living in Sheffield. And I wore a Brazilian football shirt. And I said, this is a fantastic football shirt because it's got a magic panel on the back. And when I turn around, it will tell you how many of the Ten Commandments you've broken. And when I turned round, there was a big number 10 on my back. 
But rabbinic teaching at the time taught that it was possible to keep the Ten Commandments. But it wasn't. And Jesus challenged him. He challenged him over the use of the word God. He challenged him over his keeping of the commandments. He realised that like Zacchaeus, this man's God was money. He probably also has as God's, his power, his position, his authority. But Jesus said, go and give to the poor. Sell everything and you will have treasure in heaven. Now we don't know that the man didn't do this, but we're pretty sure that he didn't do any of that. Because he said that he became very sad because he was very wealthy. He wanted eternal eternal life but he also wanted his life in this earth you see the man didn't see anything new in what Jesus was saying didn't see anything new at all he didn't get the message and Jesus went on to explain how hard it is for people who make their money their God. He said how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for, some, than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. People have argued about what that means, you know, about the camel going through the eye of a needle. Some have said that actually it's a mistranslation because the word for camel is, um, if I can just find it in my notes. No, I can't find it in my notes. But it's very similar to the word for cable, rope. Camel is camelon, Cable is Cam Ilon. So they're very similar. Was Jesus saying it's, it's like trying to get a rope through the eye of a needle, or was he saying it's like trying to get a camel through the eye of a needle? We don't know. We'll find out in due course. But what Jesus is making the point here is it's not easy. You cannot hang on to your possessions in this world and hope to inherit eternal life. And this goes against all the accepted ideas of the time. People would have thought in those days, he was rich, he must be very blessed. We get that today with the prosperity gospel, don't we? Follow God and you'll be rich. Actually, Jesus was saying the exact opposite. Whilst there are some people for whom it is possible... For the vast majority, it is not possible. So the people asked the question, who then can be saved? 
And Jesus gave the answer. What is impossible with man is possible with God. People cannot earn salvation, rich or poor. It is always a miracle of divine grace. And it is always God's gift. God is not only more demanding than people think, but he's more generous than they can dare to hope. So what's the lesson that we learn from this? Well, at this point I'd like to take you to our third passage in Luke's Gospel. Luke 14. In my Bible it's headed up the cost of being a disciple. Luke 14, verse 25. He says that large crowds were travelling with Jesus and turning to them he said... If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. And then Jesus went on to say, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is neither fit for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. So Jesus explains to us here, there is a cost to being a disciple of Jesus. Some of you might think to yourself, well didn't he say, my yoke is easy and my burden is light? Yes he did. Yes he did. His yoke is easy when you compare it to the alternative. The burden is light when you compare it to the alternative. Discipleship means giving one's first loyalty. It means nailing your colours to the mast. There is no place in Jesus' teaching for literal hatred, of course. He talks in the, at the beginning of those passages, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children. Jesus isn't saying that we should hate our mother and father. What he's saying is in comparison to the love that we should have for him, it is almost as if it was. The Ten Commandments, which I've already mentioned, of course, tell us that we should respect our parents. Husbands should love their wives. So Jesus is certainly not encouraging hate. But he's asking the question, have you really, truly nailed your colours to the mast? 
You see, for some people in the world today, following Jesus literally does mean having to leave family behind. I don't know if we've got any ex-Jehovah's Witnesses here. They have a principle in their organisation called shunning. And basically what shunning is, is if someone leaves the organisation, they shun them. Even if it's your own family, you don't talk to them, you have nothing to do with them. And so for a Jehovah's Witness to become a true Christian can very often mean, quite literally, leaving family behind. I know of a church in Bradford in West Yorkshire where they have a lot of ex-Muslim converts. Some of them have had to move out of house and home, go into hiding. Some cases even moved to different cities because it's too dangerous for them to stay there. So Jesus is looking for total conviction. He's looking for people who will carry the cross. He talks, doesn't he? Whoever does not carry their cross cannot follow me, cannot be my disciple. He goes on to use twin parables which sound very similar. He talks about a man building a tower and saying, think about it before you even get started. Because if you just build the foundations and you can't build the tower, people are going to laugh at you. People are going to talk about you behind your back. It's going to invite mockery. The second parable that Jesus uses is quite similar. He talks about an enemy coming with 20,000 men and you've only got 10,000. And he says, if I can quickly find the verse. Yes, he talks about sending a delegation while the enemy is still a long way off. And you know there's a common enemy that we've got because we're not going to live forever. One day that enemy death will catch up with each and every one of us. And the word of Jesus is in the same way. Send a delegation while the enemy is still a long way off. He then goes on to talk about salt. We know a bit about salt being here, don't we? There's great big heaps of the stuff outside. Now, salt, as many of you will know, was a preservative as well as uh, being something that would flavour your food. It was also very valuable. Our modern word salary comes from the word sal. I don't know if you know that. Because Roman soldiers in some cases were literally paid with salt. But Jesus says that if it loses its saltiness, it's neither fit for the soil nor for the manure pile it will be thrown out. Basically what Jesus is saying is don't start following me unless you are sure that you want to follow me. 
I don't want half-hearted believers. I want people like Zacchaeus, not people like the rich young ruler. But what sort of cost is there today? What sort of price are we likely to face? We live in the West, don't we? And we like to think, well, we're pretty okay living in the West. Well, if you really do follow Jesus, if you really do nail your colours to the mast, be sure some people are going to call you names. Some people will want to exclude you from their gatherings. Maybe some of you experience that at work. People would go out after work together, but you were never invited. And then there's the gossip and the backstabbing that goes on. He's one of those Bible bashers, don't you know? Stay away from her. She's a bit funny. Some of you might have been denied promotion when you were working. Some of you may have worked for yourself and you had to turn work down because people wanted you to do it cash in hand and not pay any taxes. But you know, life in the West is pretty comfortable and we need to be careful about that. I don't know if you've noticed in the cycle of life over the last year, the last step before turning away is very often feeling comfortable. It is no coincidence that the church is shrinking in the West, but it is growing around the rest of the world. An interesting statistic is in London. In London, African churchgoers outnumber white British churchgoers. Africa is now actually sending missionaries to England. Can you believe that? I remember when I first became a Christian, hearing people who were supposedly prophetic voices, and I think a lot of them were, saying that persecution was on its way to the Western world, and I thought, nah, nah, that's not going to happen. We, we're, we're liberal. We let things go. We don't try to... We would, the West would never try and ban the church. Well, let me tell you three stories that have all happened this last year in England. The first story I want to tell you is about a group of anti-abortion protesters who, who were in Bristol, outside the town hall. They were viciously attacked by a woman who kicked, beat and punched many of them. It was on video and they took the video to a, a nearby policeman. He said, well, you probably triggered her. He said, you shouldn't be triggering her. I, I, I'm probably right to arrest you rather than arrest her. This is a woman who kicked and beaten and punched people. And the police would do nothing. At Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park, a, Mus a Muslim woman 
who had converted to Christianity was preaching the gospel. She was attacked by a man with a knife shouting, Allo Akbar. She received several wounds to the, to the face and the neck. People say it's only good luck that she didn't die. The police have so far not been able to arrest anybody because the man was wearing a mask. And the Muslim onlookers say, we didn't see anything. We don't know who it was. In my hometown of Sheffield, just in August, in fact it might even have been September of this year, a man was on the streets handing out leaflets, inviting people to come to church on Sunday. Someone attacked him and stabbed him to death. The story didn't even make the national news. God forbid that anything like that should happen to any of us. God forbid it. But are we willing to pay the price? Have we measured the cost of following Jesus? Do you even realise that there is a cost? There's a question that Billy Graham often used to ask when he was preaching the gospel, and I'm going to leave you with the same question. The question is this. If Christianity did become outlawed, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Just think about that. If Christianity were ever to be made illegal, would there be enough evidence to convict you? I hope and I pray that there would be. Not because I want to see you convicted, but because I want to see you following Jesus. So let's close in prayer. Lord, how hard it can be sometimes to follow you, to truly follow you. But Lord, it is nothing compared to the price that you paid to save us. The cost of stepping down from heaven and becoming a man and experiencing death, even death on a cross for our sake, Lord. Help us to be stronger. Help us to be bolder. Help us to be outspoken. For your kingdom's sake, amen. Thank you for listening to the ministry of the International Christian Assembly, a ministry of AMG Spain and AMG International. For more information, please visit our website at www.icatorrevieja.org. This audio file is not copyrighted.